0: It was a busy, at times chilly, but productive couple of days at CropTech this week. If you remove a certain active, then this will be the impact on the industry. And we've already lost a
1: significant number of, of active ingredients in the review process, uh, and that will continue to happen.
2: Frequent use is, um, is, is key. Uh, I think that's the same with any software, or any solution actually on the farm, uh, technology-wise.
0: On today's programme, we've highlights of all of that, plus your weekly agronomy, grain, and the latest on the sugar beet campaign as well.
3: The yield is exceeding our expectations and as such we are reallocating Hawley's permits out for another two weeks that will take us to the end of February.
4: Sunday December 4th 2016 this is the Farming Programme with Sean Dunderdale.
3: Good morning.
0: Build is the essential technical and business event for arable and mixed farmers. CropTech certainly lived up to the hype this week. There were uh, plenty of people to talk to on Tuesday and Wednesday at the East of England showground. Indeed, so many. We haven't got time for them all this week, but we will hear from them over the next couple of weeks or so. Let's start, though, with John Knight. He's head of Crop Health and Protection at AHDB. And he chatted with Andrew Ward.
5: Uh, John, we've just been hearing lots of things about uh, research and R&D in in the industry. Could you just explain how is the AHDB work funded, please, at the moment? Because
6: obviously it's a massive, massive budget you have. And where does that money come from? Uh, Well, basically it comes from from farmers. Um, So for cereals and oilseeds, for example, for every tonne of grain that is bought and sold... Uh, part of that money that exchanges hands is the levy, and the levy comes back to AHDB, and that obviously helps fund us in our work, whether that be R&D or market information or all of those sorts of things. Yes, so so basically
5: every single tonne that we produce as farmers, uh, every single tonne, distract there's a certain percent of and pennies is taken off and it's taken off of every ton of grain that's sold in the exactly. UK exactly so, so it's
6: a farmer sells it to the merchant yep. the levy is raised merchant sells it somewhere else levy again yeah right through to the and end it's user the merchant
5: that then goes into yep. the system that then hands it over exactly. it to
6: yourself so we get money in that respect y-
5: yeah yeah and then looking at going forward at uh, one of the main things we've been talking about today and there's a big issue is loss of actives what sort of research is AHDB doing into that and who you're working with on that
6: well it's it's very much a, a joint effort so that the areas where we think we can help with that is is building the evidence that demonstrates what the value of those actives are to the farming industry mm. um and we can then give that we're not a lobbying organization because we're obviously a government organization yep. um what we can do though is to provide that evidence to other people like the nfu who can then use that to lobby governments yes. and european uh, mm. regulators and so forth mm. to to demonstrate that if you remove a certain active then this will be the impact on the industry right. it? and it's not just direct impact it's downstream from that and the impact on uh, processors and ultimately on the public as well yes. in terms of food prices and availability
5: yeah yeah i mean and there's also do you think looking forward um
6: the environmentalists
5: and, and the green parties are, are going to have more of an influence and, and affect more what is available to the farmer
6: I think that's highly likely. I, I I see it. I think it'll be quite difficult uh, to move backwards, if you like, from yeah. where we are. I think that they're, they're extremely powerful organisations. I mm. think everybody recognises that. Mm. But I think that you know they're here to stay, mm-hmm. and I think that they will continue what they do yes. um, and yeah clearly that will impact in the long term mm. on what we do so that's obviously
5: we've talked about cereals and oil seeds looking forward into the into the livestock industry and grassland obviously uh, we've had a, an active ingredient that's been with us a number of years has been removed chlorpyrifos and uh, and obviously leather jackets is, is a big problem in grassland and so what's the problem uh, with that yeah. what damage was it doing
6: um, well, the chlorperifos was one of the older actives, and it, and it uh, I guess the safety profile uh, was judged to be um, inappropriate. Now, clearly, historically, it was okay to use, but with changes in, in regulation and the data packages required mm. to re-register these products, it wasn't uh, going to go forward, so we've now lost that. Yeah. Um, clearly, it's a major issue if you're looking to put in a reseed, uh, a new lay, Uh, Leather jacket control was its primary target in that respect, Um, so part of what we're trying to do is to try and find something that that may well substitute for that, but uh, I wouldn't hold my breath to to, to waver the solution at the moment.
0: John Knight of AHDB. It's their agronomist conference this week, Thursday and Friday, and it's launching a, a triple theme for the coming year. We'll look at that theme and what it means on next week's programme. Loss of actives was one theme of crop tech this year. Simon Leake is from Belgium Crop Protection. We've already lost a significant number of, of active ingredients
1: in the review process, uh, and that will continue to happen uh, under the, the the new reviews. Um, active ingredients are being renewed again, going through the new systems, which is a, an extremely costly exercise, and we will lose more. And although the number that we are that we have now is sounds a lot at 500 it's really not if you break that down by crop and then by pest disease or weed yes there's not many
5: and what was so what was that figure say going back five years or 10 years that we've
1: got 500 Uh, now we've lost on average about 60 percent of what we had and um, we're going to lose more. I, I, it's difficult to put a number on what we'll lose additional
5: yes. to, to what we've already lost, but it will be significant. Yeah, yeah right, that's interesting. And do you think uh, loss of the actives is, is uh, partly or due to the pressure groups and the government listening a lot to the pressure groups and, and Friends of the Earth and Soil Association and people like that who say what we're using is, is not any good for the environment? Um,
1: I think it's some and some. Some active ingredients are old and they just haven't managed to survive the new regulations. Uh, some have where companies have, have been prepared to put the spend in, and it's a significant spend, to bring those molecules or the studies up to modern standards to support those mm, molecules, yeah. and those have got through. But some certainly, in my opinion, is a, are a, it's more political
5: reasons yes. rather than... Um, Scientific, yes, reasons. right, okay, and and sort of going forward, uh, the, the process of registering, uh, or, or uh, if you like, inventing if you'd like to call it that, breeding new new active ingredients, it's a lengthy and costly job, isn't it? Well, it yep. just sort of run us through the process a little bit, if you would.
1: Well, um, I, I'm, companies can screen a lot more active ingredients now than used to be the case. I mean, they're probably screening about 150,000 active ingredients every year, sure. yeah. but in terms of Uh, The number that actually make it onto market for every 150,000 active screened, only one gets to market. Just one out of 150,000? One out of 150,000. And that process from synthesis to market now takes about 11
5: years. Right, so 11 years for one active, and what cost is that over that time?
1: Um, It's over 200 million, between 200 and 250
5: million pounds. And so, of those others that have lost, they obviously haven't cost all that amount because they've probably been discarded, bef- you know, way before the 11-year timescale. Yeah,
1: I, I, yes. Um, in terms of older active ingredients, where companies have, have realised that the, the spend is t- too much to, um, for them to justify, because financially it has to be viable, yeah. then they've just dropped those. Um, but in terms of brand new active ingredients, obviously they're screening a huge number and they have to take the decision because the, once you push the button for development and you go into a full development phase the studies needed for residues, metabolism, environmental tox toxicology for um, operators and bystanders and all that sort of stuff is, is really significant now and companies have to be sure that the active ingredient and the formulated product at the end because you're, you're adding yes. form, co-formulants in there uh, to make a formulation they have to be sure that they're going to get registration because yeah. otherwise they're spending huge millions and millions of pounds um, and they, they need to be sure that it's going to get through registration because if it doesn't then that's all wasted. All mm. of that money's wasted. So
5: it is a very, very costly process, and you yep. can see, I suppose, why when you get these actives actually come into the the market, and we as farmers use them, why you can see they cost a lot of money to put in because you've got to try and get some of the money back over the years. Uh, yeah, I, I know manufacturers aren't um,
1: always farmers' greatest uh, yeah.
5: <laughs> ally, if you like,
1: yes. but but we are really, and and the, the reason that some products cost a lot is because they cost a lot to to develop, mm. and manufacturers have to generate sufficient return on investment to be able to fund the yes, next product. That, yeah. that money doesn't come no, from no, uh,
0: no,
5: no.
1: nowhere. You know that, that, you need a successful product to be able to then fund the next one yes, in development, yeah. fund that whole process of development.
0: Simon Leake of Belgium Crop Protection, speaking there with Andrew Ward, the Dalai farmer as Sean Sparling has nicknamed Wardy. Uh, Speaking of Sean, let's get an update from the world of agronomy, shall we? Morning, Sean. Yes,
7: good morning, Sean. Uh, I just want to clarify something before we go any further. Last week, I said you couldn't drill austral plus dress seed after the 1st of January. You can, of course, drill austral dress seed, the wheat bulb fly treatment, after the 1st of January. That's never changed. What you can't drill is deter dress seed after the 1st of January. Um, It's my mistake that so many things go round your head's sometime, um, and I thought I'd said deter, but I didn't when I listened back. Uh- so, you can't drill deter dress seed, but you can drill austral plus dress seed. But then again, it's never a bad thing just to question what you're hearing sometimes. You, um, every now and then people do make mistakes, and it's always the right thing to do to clarify and ask the question. So, apologies for any confusion. You can put austral plus dress seed on, you can't drill deter dress wheat seed after the 1st of January. Um, it's a neonicotinoid, and it's all to do with the label. It's not a safety thing, it is a label thing and a statutory requirement. Um, so, while we're with wheat, let's stay with it. Um... We've had a bit of a significant frosty spell this week. We were down to minus eight on Monday night into Tuesday at home and we've had two or three significant frosts this week. Now, that won't bother so much. The ones that have been in a while, the ones that have been drilled and up and they've three, four leaves heading into tillering now because they've already had some minus twos and minus threes across them. So in the case of those, you probably stop spraying by about three o'clock in the afternoon. Personally, I wouldn't spray preceding a minus eight frost uh, ever Uh, because I think the risk of crop damage is too great but if you do get frost forecasts and they're talking about minus one two three then stopping spraying by three o'clock in the afternoon is a very good rule of thumb slightly different for the later drillings which are only at one one and a half leaves now pricking through the ground and they haven't had a significant frost on them so these would be the first frosts of the season that phrase frost hardy is what happens next because if you get a run of frost it depletes the wax layer it softens the cells it bursts some of the cells within the leaves when you get down to minus 8 and you need 24 hours clear of a frost so a night without frost before you should consider going spraying again and the reason you leave that gap is so that the wax layer which had been broken down by the frost comes back thicker than it was before the frost hit that's what winter hardiness is and it's a protection of the leaf really so now that we've come out of that run of frosts if there's a frost forecast, just stop spraying by about 3 o'clock in the afternoon and make your own call as to the severity of the frost and whether you should be spraying at all. Um, out there also in winter wheat, you'll be seeing quite a lot of dead hearts, and that can be attributed to several pests, frit fly, oppermiser or yellow cereal fly, uh, wheat shoot, beetle, slugs even, are doing this. Um, the, you can tell them apart, the oppermiser, if you pull the dead heart out, you get this brown spiral that runs down the base of the dead heart, that's a typical sign of yellow cereal fly or opomizer because the grub hatches out and then burrows down to the bottom in that spiral, if you've just got a little hole in the side of the dead heart, little brown hole, and a dead heart, then that will be frit fly. It won't be wheat bull fly at this time of year because they won't hatch until probably January time. You won't see that damage until March. if it's wheat shoot beetle, they tend to chew the plants off at ground level, just underground level, so the whole plant is dead, and if it's slugs, it's very similar to um, wheat shoot beetle but you tend to get a lot of grazing around in the field as well. So whether you should be putting an insecticide on and bear in mind we really only have pyrethroids, to control something which is inside the plant, a grub like opomizer or fly. when they're not going to do any more damage. They don't hop from tiller to tiller like wheat bullfly. It's very questionable. For me, I don't think you should be doing recreational insecticide applications knowing that you won't get it any worse than it is now. It's probably as bad as it is now. Um, so get the rolls out in the spring, a bit of early nitrogen, that'll probably do more good to everybody, including the environment, than applying insecticides which are Likely to work. Oil seed rape, yes, it is cold enough for propizamide or curb now. Just a word of caution don't go putting propizamide on fields of rape which have got pools of water in them, they're waterlogged because that way we get propisamide in the watercourse and there's so much scrutiny on the seed rape herbicides at the moment, the last thing we want to do is temp fate. You've got until the end of January you can put it on in frosty conditions you do need moisture there and you do need cold soils, we've got both of those things but if you've got fields which are standing in water, stay out of them and do them last or in January when things are drying out. Um, and then remember if you're putting a fungicide in with that propisamide. you You need the leaf to be dry enough for a fungicide so um, we need the fungicide to stay on the leaf and the curb to go on the floor no good going on in a frost you can't do that if there's anything other than curb in the tank and there's no point because your fungicide will end up on the floor anyway Um, so apart from that things are now cold it's beginning to feel a lot like christmas carols and Christmas songs all over the radio. We're winding down now and the antifreeze will soon be going in that sprayer. But just watch the frosts and take care in terms of waterlogging when you go out with things like propisamide. Ho, ho,
0: ho. Happy Christmas, Sean. Too early? Maybe. He'll be back next week. Sean Sparling, Sparling Agronomy Services. We're back at CropTech soon. First, though, we're at British Sugar for the latest from Nick Morris.
3: Yeah, going very well, thank you. So we're now 61 days in, and I'm pleased to report that the factory's going well. And in fact, by 7 o'clock this morning, we will have processed around 570,000 tonnes of sugar beet and are currently averaging a daily slice of 9,350 tonnes a day. So that's a good increase on, on my last report two weeks ago. Beet supply remains plentiful, as one would expect. Uh, Harvesters have now built up adequate stocks on farm, and indeed contractors probably have quite a long list of growers that would like their crop harvesting in the coming weeks, still in time to get their winter crops sown. So I'm sure their phones are are very busy. So we've now got around 41% of uh, our contracted tonnage delivered, uh, and the quality of the crop remains very good. We have now received around 21,000 loads to date, and average dirt tear is 5.6%. And sugar content is currently averaging 17.22%, which is, even at this later stage uh, in campaign, is still an increase of 0.1%. It's my last report two weeks ago, so that's really, really pleasing at the end of November. We've uh, we had around three inches of rain um, over the last couple of weeks which, as one would expect, uh, does have a dilution effect on sugar content. Uh, and the rain, coupled with the lower temperatures we've had this week, I would expect sugar content to have reached its peak for the campaign now. However, uh, would still hope for some further root growth throughout December to, uh, to increase yield even more. And so far, we've got around 90 contracts that have finished delivering their crop for the season. Overall yield of 69 tonne a hectare is really pleasing given the challenging season we had earlier on in the spring and actually a you know, fantastic testament to the weight the crop can gain through a kind autumn.
0: You mentioned those uh, temperatures in the week. I mean, they did fall you know, quite, quite
3: well below freezing on, on a couple of nights this week. Has that had an impact? Um, yeah, they did. And uh, I guess it's, you wouldn't say it was unusual at the end of uh, November for temperatures to drop, and in fact, at uh, Newark Factory here, we measured them uh, down to minus two and, and minus three on one night. Um, however, because they've been relatively short lived and we've got a bit of a milder forecast um, ahead of us, we're not anticipating that causing us uh, any issues, and the quality of the crops being harvested now are still very, very good. The most susceptible uh, areas during those cold nights of the beet that have been lifted that day or the day before, because the, uh, the plant cells are still very, very turgid and firm, it can cause them to rupture. So the outside of clamps are probably susceptible, so so long as they're being uh, monitored and delivered quickly, then uh, we wouldn't anticipate any losses. We're into December now, three weeks today to the uh, the big day itself.
0: Um, how
3: does that affect things at the factory? That's right, yeah, festive scene, season nearly upon us uh, again. They seem to come around very quickly. And, in fact, in the factory, it's just any other day. Uh, we continue 24-7 throughout the whole of uh, the Christmas period. Uh, as far as the process area of the, the, the factory goes, we will actually be closed on Christmas Day and New Year's Day only for sugar beet deliveries lorry drivers and, and harvester drivers, uh, understandably, would like to have a break, and I don't blame them. Um, so we'll just be closed for those two days, other than that, processing will continue as normal. And then into the, the new year, we're back, and, well, not long to go to the end of campaign when we get back in the new year, really. That's right, Sean. yet yeah, we uh, initially planned for a shorter campaign, although thankfully, as I was... Uh, uh, describing earlier yield is exceeding our expectations and as such we are reallocating haulier's permits following the growers stock take uh, out for another around another two weeks that'll take us to the to the end of february so effectively as a result of the, the yield the crop yield being uh, much greater than we'd anticipated yet yeah, we will be putting another two weeks onto campaign which will take us to the end of february nick morris british sugar Swiftly on to open field then, and it's Chris
8: Spratt with the news you need this week. The market really is um, probably finding its own way at the minute. Everybody's a bit conscious uh, about currency and everything else. This week, though, um, for my part, well, it's all been about really talking to growers about seed for next season, for the spring, certainly spring barley seed. Um, As we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the area for next year is going to be increased um, for various reasons. And so you know, people need to make sure they've got that spring barley seed ordered. Otherwise, it's going to be a, a case of a bit of restrictive choice, really. So, that's been uh, you know one of the focuses this week. Really, the wheat market itself probably largely unchanged by the end of the week. Firmer sterling, you know, has started to take its toll a little bit. Midweek we to see December uh, wheat futures in Chicago trade at contract lows for the season. So just to put it into context of what's happening elsewhere in the world. European traders, well, they're waiting to see the outcome of various elections referendums over the next uh, few weeks in the EU. Uh, but Sterling does appear to be firming against the euro in Russia well, certainly they've experienced what 's been uh, quoted as being the coldest November this century and logistics in Ru- the Russian Russian interior can actually be challenging at this time of year at best uh, there's also reports on Thursday of a proposal just at this stage of quarantine restrictions. Uh, in uh, in areas in the southern region of what's called Krasnodar, uh, and that's to prevent outbe- out- further outbreaks of swine flu from spreading. That Krasnodar region actually is 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 part of a region that's a, a big exporter of grains via the Black Sea, so it's quite important, really. And on paper, Russia still has got 22 million tons of wheat surplus to account for. Again, they've been facing a little bit of a battle there because a couple of their main buyers uh, in Turkey and Egypt, well, they've got extremely weak currencies at the moment, so it's making it more expensive for them to import. Uh, domestically in the UK, well, the spot shorts that we've seen over the last few weeks on the wheat seem to have been taken taken their their medicine now for December, uh, and really, it's all about the execution of December grains, which of course. F- for, uh, from, uh, from our point of view, it is always a short month, of course, and Mill's always busy in the run-up to Christmas. As far as prices are concerned, well, feed wheat for January 135 to 137, with May 137 to 139. Milling wheat premiums really in the region of 6 to £8, not a great deal of movement there at the moment. Looking forward to new crop feed wheat for November 17, 128 to 130, with May 18, 134 to 136. Old crop feed barley for January, 117 to 119, with May 120 to 122. The old crop spring barley market there um, for the Max 185s, still holding up well in the region of 140 to 145x. And then new crop on the spring barleys, November, December, around about 145 and 150 for some time in the early spring. Oil seed rape, uh, well, again, bouncing about all over the place because of the currency. Uh, January in the region of uh, 3.42 to 3.50, dependent on currency and, and location at the time. Um, and that currency has probably kept the price in check this week. I mean, you know, we've finished towards the end of the week round 118 against the euro. Um, but I think we, we have seen the, the odd spike, and I think it's important for growers to keep in touch and... Uh, uh, and communicate just what sort of levels they're looking for. Obviously, the OPEC uh, producers agreeing uh, reduction in production or limiting production, really. That, that sort of uh, fueled the oil price, if it's not that too much of a pun. Um, but it'll be interesting to see, you know, it's a big world now, how the fracking industry in the States responds to that. Um, harvest rapeseed, that's traded in the region of 312 to 315. Chris Spratt, Open Field.
0: Right, back to crop tech, and there was plenty of new technology on offer, the tech side of crop tech, if you will. Among the many exhibitors, our own Ellie Codling met Ben Hatton, a farm plan gatekeeper. Gatekeeper is a crop management and precision farming software tool for
2: growers and advisors.
4: OK, so how would uh, what, what benefits would it bring to a farmer to use it?
2: It really depends on the growers' or the advisors' scenarios, but um, the bread and butter of the software programme is to provide a a tool for managing the traceability and the compliance for growing a crop, whether it's actually recording the applications or going through the due diligence or making recommendations in advance for an advisor to hand over to their growers.
4: So it's keeping a record of...? your field rotation as well is
2: it yeah absolutely um, on a year-by-year basis it records all of the fields activities so all the um, activities from tillage operations all the way around to crop protection and harvest so if you like the complete cycle of the, of the crop whilst it's growing And it also allows the grower then to manage their stock inputs as well. Um, And if they're doing grain trades as well, they can record that. So it's, if you like, everything uh, around the recording process of of managing that crop, from when it's grown to when it's harvested.
4: How sophisticated is this software? Because obviously a lot of people in very rural locations, are they needing good broadband for it to work well?
2: Broadband helps, um, and certainly for moving data between software licenses or importing data from tractors or combine harvesters or mobile phones that are gathering data in the field. Um, Gatekeeper, which is our software offering, has a unique facility in which the software is installed locally on a machine so that it's um, not restrained by internet connectivity, although we do use the internet to move data um, and to if you like, expedite that sort of um, information across the farm or between grower and advisor, so who is involved in that information chain in the business.
4: And it's uh, quite easy to use, is it? And to get your head around if it's the first time you're going to use software for your farm recording
2: i think the key of any software solution and certainly ours is to have a sort of a clear understanding of what you're trying to achieve what what are the needs on the farm is it to address a, um, a you know a recording requirement for traceability is it to bring in precision farming data which is one of the options um, and i think if the grower's got a clear understanding of what, where they're starting from where, what information they've got available to them and how they're trying to build that picture up for the farm then they're halfway there that is the sort of main battle Um, with our software we provide a training team Um, every software user has access to a dedicated telephone support team so there is assistance throughout the year to allow the grower to get the most out of their investment
4: and it's something they're probably best using on a daily basis is it just to keep the work level you know it can be a quick easy job if you do it daily can it
2: I think you've hit the nail on the head of frequent use is um, is is key Uh, I think that's the same with any software or any solution actually on the farm uh, technology wise Um, obviously farming being quite cyclical there are times uh, within the season that uh, that a grower would be doing more data entry than at other times so there'll be ebbs and flows on that work but absolutely little and often is the key um, and and that sort of helps helps the sort of wheels keep turning
0: ben hatton a farm plan gatekeeper at CropTech, this week well it was a cold couple of days at the east of england showgram but dry at least what's the coming week got in store for us though
4: the farming program five-day forecast
0: well today should be mostly sunny feeling a bit chilly though seven celsius the high the wind blowing from the east 10 gusting at 20 miles an hour Overcast tonight, lows down to around 2 Celsius, could be some fog in places, that wind continuing from the east, maybe the southeast, around 10 miles an hour. And then tomorrow, patchy clouds, some sunny spells, should be dry, highs of 6 Celsius, and that wind continuing from the east-southeast between 5 and 10 miles an hour. Monday into Tuesday, again, staying overcast. Should be dry, perhaps some rain first thing on Tuesday, though. Three Celsius the low, the wind more from the southeast at about five miles an hour. And then Tuesday at the moment looks like a band of particularly heavy rain will sweep across, particularly in the middle of the day. Could be uh, seven, eight millimetres falling in a very short space of time. Six Celsius the high away from that rain, the wind from the east between two and five miles an hour. Overnight Tuesday into Wednesday, it should be dry again, staying overcast. Lows of around 5 Celsius, so a little bit milder. Uh, the wind from the east-southeast at uh, 10, maybe gusting at 15 miles an hour. And then through Wednesday, the possibility of some rain. Could be a sharp shower in places. Bit warmer, actually. 8 Celsius, could even be 9 Celsius come the end of Wednesday itself. That wind picking up from the south, hence the rise in temperatures. 15 gusting at 25, maybe 30 miles an hour come the end of Wednesday. And then by the latter end of the week, well, there could be another band of heavy rain likely to sweep across, but it will be milder. We're looking at temperatures of 10, 11, maybe even 12 Celsius for a short time in the middle of the day. Uh, The wind from the southwest, 15 gusting at 30 miles an hour. Your overnight lows, again, pretty mild actually, of around uh, 8 or 9 Celsius come the end of the week. And that's the forecast next week a little more from our trip to crop tech plus the ahdb agronomist conference taking place later this week that plus the rest of the world of agriculture as usual next sunday at the same time until then have a good week's farming